Welcome to Pound the Rock, an NBA podcast by the score. My name is Joseph Cacharo. This is the 69th episode of Pound the Rock, and I'm here with co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? What up? Is that it's our 69th episode? Of- very nice. Very, very nice. Pound the Rock, we made it, man. Um, when you do that intro, are you like trying to invoke Sean Connery from The Rock, or... Why did did I did I have a lisp or something at some point? <laughs> no, it's just like the whole welcome to the rock thing. That's what it put me in mind of. That, that's a you, you that's said it with much dramatic emphasis. Classic action movie. Yeah, but yeah, man, I I, I can't believe we have made it this far. It's yeah. been uh, what like fourteen months now since we since we yeah. started doing this. Yeah, about that. It's last uh, April. Lost a good man along the way, yeah. but here we are still plugging, chugging along just like the NBA playoffs. Uh, more than halfway through the second round now. One team from the second round is already out. We have a lot to get to, and we're going to start with the two games last night. Uh, you want to start Bucks Celtics, or you want to start Warriors Rockets? Where do you want to go here? Um, let's start Warriors Rockets, uh, just because we can kind of do a okay. post mortem yeah. of the of the Bucks Celtics after, uh, and take a little bit longer. This one, obviously, series is still ongoing, so you know we don't have as much of a kind of off-season existential look ahead uh, the way that we might for the Celtics but I just think this has been such an interesting weird fun series and as much as the basketball itself has been a bit of a slog sometimes and not particularly pretty it's been like a, a kind of a delight to watch because these are two teams who just I think are so in each other's heads and so determined to beat one another so I think attuned to each other's tendencies and sensitivities they get under each other's skin and I don't know man every every game just brings something different and um, obviously the big story I think from last night's game was Durant going out with that calf strain which fortunately was only a calf strain and not what it initially looked like which was you know Durant comes down after that jump shot it's a non-contact injury he's kind of looking back in surprise as if you know, I've heard people talk about what it feels like when you rupture your Achilles tendon, and they say it's basically like you just got kicked in the heel. And that seemed like what Durant's reaction to that injury was. And obviously, Reggie Miller kind of fanning the flames on the broadcast with some rampant speculation, but I think a lot of people were, were fearing the same thing. So a relief that uh, it was only a cast strain, but still an injury that's probably going to keep him out for yeah. the rest of the series— and even after that, that news came down that it wasn't an Achilles injury, we knew that the Warriors were going to have to finish this game without him. And he has carried them for so many of these playoff games. The game was tied at that point, or I think the, the Rockets might have been down one after erasing a 20-point first-half deficit. And, I mean, the Warriors' season was kind of hanging in the balance there for a minute, and they brought it back under control. And I think even... I saw a lot of people saying after this that the Rockets had like blown a huge opportunity, which I guess you could say that they did. But this Warriors team without Durant is still really, really good. Like those core three guys, and even four if you want to include Iguodala, maybe say five if you want to include Kevon Looney, who's been outstanding at moments in the playoffs and was again last night. They're still really effing good, and I don't think I don't consider this like a huge lost opportunity for the Rockets. I, I think. The Warriors totally earned every bit of that win. I think the Rockets played pretty well, apart from, you know, some offensive struggles from Chris Paul. And, I, you know, I think they still have a pretty good chance to go back and, and win at home and send it back to a Game 7 where, 
anything can happen. Well, it's very similar to last year, except with the roles reversed, right? Last year, Houston took the 3-2 right. lead in the game. Chris Paul got hurt, and it was like, oh, my God, the Warriors were on the ropes, but Chris Paul's hurt. How are the Rockets going to close it out? And now it's, well, the Warriors got the Rockets on the ropes this time, and it's, well, can they close them out without KD? I will say, I think two things can be true in terms of, like, the Warriors taking the game, but also the Rockets blowing an opportunity. I think everyone knows the Warriors, obviously, without KD and even Boogie, are still a great team. They still have two of the best shooters of all time, if not the two best shooters of all time, and an absolute defensive monster in Draymond Green, who, even though he's not the best individual offensive producer, is a brilliant offensive mind in the way he kind of orchestrates things. I will say, too, that this series is the best Draymond Green has looked and the closest to peak Draymond we've seen in a while, including his ferocity, the way he's reacting after, technicals or not, the way he's reacting, like, this looks like peak Draymond, which is huge for the Warriors, particularly if they don't have Durant. But I think that can be true, and at the same time, it can be true that the war- the Rockets did kind of bungle an opportunity here. James Harden took one shot in the final nine minutes of this game after looking like the best player on the court for, like, three and a quarter of quarters. Uh, Chris Paul was awful in this game. And so I think you can look at it that way and look at it as like they came back from 20 down. Kevin Durant was out for the game. Everything was going for them. You get anything from Chris Paul. You get maybe one or two extra shots for James Harden down the stretch and maybe they win it. And I think looking at it from that perspective, you can still say the Rockets kind of blew an opportunity here. The Harden thing's weird, and I actually wrote about this after the game because I was sort of trying to wrap my head around it. You know, you mentioned he took the one field goal, and it wasn't even really like a a normal field goal attempt because the Warriors basically conceded that layup to him when they were up five points with under 20 seconds to go. So he basically just didn't take a shot for the last nine minutes, and his crunch time usage rate was 12.5% which is, you know, obviously you look at his regular season numbers, 49% was his usage rate in the clutch during the regular season, 42% in the playoffs coming into this game. And it wasn't just that he wasn't finishing possessions. It was that he wasn't involved in them really at all. You know, he was walking up the court and then kind of meandering around half court, drawing a defender out there, but not really being involved in the play at all. And... It didn't really end up mattering. The Rockets' offense was really effective down the stretch. You know, whether it was Chris Paul baiting for fouls, Eric Gordon hit a couple of big shots, that wasn't where they lost the game. So it it's hard to put that on Harden when their offense continued to operate so effectively. And the Warriors, when he did have the ball, you know, anywhere within 30 feet of the basket, they were sending double teams at him. They were trying to get the ball out of his hands. Ordinarily, I think... If he was going at 100%, he probably still just tries to break those traps, or he's running toward the ball when he doesn't have it in his hands as opposed to just drifting near half court. So I do think he was gassed. He played 45 minutes in this game, obviously expended a ton of energy getting them back into the game. Played brilliantly, I thought, until that closing stretch. But they didn't lose the game on offense. You know, they lost it at the other end of the floor. And I don't know how much they could have done. Steph hit a couple pretty ridiculous threes one of them was a three in like semi-transition Draymond had pushed the ball off of a make and the defense was scrambled and Jarebko came and basically set a down screen for Steph who was the trailer and nobody picked him up but another one he just he got Capella switched onto him danced with Capella for a few seconds and hit a ridiculous pull-up three I mean Draymond Green hit a three which I think you're happy two threes he hit one in the fourth quarter after, I mean, on the first possession of the fourth quarter, he hit one off the side of the backboard. 
And he, he launched one from the wing with like 13 seconds on the shot clock. And I think you're fine conceding that. That stretch from Draymond, by the way, was like the most Draymond stretch ever. Including kicking Chris Paul in the back. <laughs> he, with five fouls, he takes the charge on Chris Paul, then celebrates way too exuberantly and catches him in the back with a knee, gets teed up, then comes down and hits that three, then fouls out of the game. Um, he, he was awesome in this one, and, and I completely agree. This is the best I've seen him look all year, and he looks you know, close to being peak Draymond. I think the, you know, the fact that he still isn't really shooting particularly well uh, means that he's not quite at the level he was at in like 2015-16, but the way that he's moving around, the way that he's defending and playmaking has been you know as good as you'll see from him so that's been huge and clay thompson finally found his shot in this game after looking really really shaky uh for the first few games of this Steph did in the fourth quarter as well finally steph was having one of the worst games that i've ever seen him worst series man yeah um but this game i mean worst series and this game was the worst of the bunch until that fourth quarter i mean he wasn't hitting shots missed layups he wasn't finishing at the rim and he was chucking the ball all over the place making some terrible turnovers and then Durant goes out, and it's we've kind of seen this before, right? He just, when the offense is running through him, when he's running high pick and rolls and, you know, controlling the ball, as opposed to basically being forced to play off of it and, and you know, use his gravity to open things up for everybody else, he just gets into a little bit more of a groove, and I think he is really like a feel type of player. And as soon as that happened, he started to just completely go off and turn the game around. So, I don't know, man. I think Matt Moore was making this point on Twitter, and I don't know if I totally agree, but he was saying that he thinks that this Durant injury actually gives the Warriors a better chance to close this series out in six because what the Rockets do to the Warriors affects Durant the most, where they devolve into isolation ball because that's what they feel like they need to do to counter Houston's defense. And their default is just to go to Durant in like the mid post area. And they want to isolate him on one side of the floor. And that just takes them away from what they do so well. And what, what has made them who they are over the past few years. I, I understand the argument, the basketball argument there. And I still think it's ludicrous. Kevin Durant's been the best player in this series. He has, but it's just... I think there's something to be said for the diminishing returns when you already have so much superstar talent on your team, especially somebody who is as incredible at creating offense as Curry is. And the the Warriors, you know, they built this dynasty atop a foundation of ball movement and player movement and motion sets and systematized basketball that they've gotten away from, which I, I don't know. I can't really say for sure whether whether it's a good thing or a bad thing in this specific matchup because... Yes, they've relied to a ridiculous degree on Durant and what he can do in isolation. If they go away from that, I'm not sure that they're not going to have just as much success. And in that fourth quarter, they had an offensive rating of 145. I think that's one quarter of one game. And I think it's a lot different than the next nine, potentially 96 minutes of basketball, which if the series is any indication is going to be a bloodbath, right? Like if you take Kevin Durant out of this series from the jump, the Rockets probably win one of those first two games. Like, I don't know. I just think he's been so important to them in this series. And I understand, again, I understand what Matt Moore is saying. I understand what you're saying. And I think you saw that bear out in the fourth quarter of this game. But, like, part of the reason Durant probably got hurt is because he had to play 45 minutes a game on a team with zero depth. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer in 
like everybody else, the fact that star talent and top-tier talent carries you in April, May, and June rather than depth. But that applies, I think, more so to like, you know, don't get caught up in the 8th, ninth, 10th man or having an 11th man doesn't matter at this time of year. You still need some semblance of depth. You need a one, two bench guys, okay? So that your starters don't have to play 45 minutes a game. And if KD doesn't play game six, and it doesn't sound like he will, and it goes to a game seven, I'm pretty confident, with or without KD, I'm actually pretty confident the Rockets win game six and force a game seven. We're looking at 96 minutes of intense playoff basketball that the Warriors are maybe going to play with like five, six max playable guys. Kevon Looney's been great, yeah. and him crashing the glass well he'd actually it's weird because he he was fantastic in the first round but he looked unplayable in the series or yes. early on so to get a great game from him like that was really really important like, but again they that, that kind so of goes badly. to what i'm saying right like it was like okay kamal looney had a great game and a great quarter there and the warriors kind of looked like the pre-kd warriors for a quarter but like one quarter is so different than having to go do it now for a full game in houston mm-hmm. when the rockets maybe finally smell blood and then having to come back home but the like- rockets are basically dealing with the same thing i mean the accumulated wear and tear in these playoffs for all the teams involved is ridiculous and it's and it's more extreme than i can remember and, you know, in the Nuggets-Blazers series, it's kind of been extenuating circumstances. You know, they had a 4-0 OT game in which one of the players who's, you know, not necessarily known for being the um, most physically fit player in the league ends up playing 65 minutes. And, you know, for the rest of the teams, aside from the Bucks, really, and this is the reason why I'm feeling like the Bucks are probably going to win the title. Aside from the Bucks, every other team is just relying on like six guys or seven guys max and i i think everyone's sort of dealing with the same thing right now so yes it's a concern for the warriors not just because they're losing durant but because of who they're going to be forced to replace him with and that's that's going to be an issue for sure i just think with the rockets it's more or less the same thing you saw harden you know seemingly running out of gas at the end of that game maybe chris paul is running out of gas as well he to me is like I mean, a lot of it's just missing shots, but he's also just not really creating separation the way that we've seen him do in the past. They're really relying on uh, Eric Gordon to create a lot for them. And, to his credit. And he's, he's been outstanding. But I don't know. I mean, is he going to be able to carry that load and carry them across the finish line in the series? I'm not so sure. I don't know. I, I really can't call it. I don't know which way it's going to go. I think I agree with you. I think, I think the Rockets are going to take game six. I picked the Rockets in seven, and, and in theory, I should feel a lot better about that now, knowing that Durant probably wouldn't play in a theoretical game seven, but I just don't know, man. They're, they're something I feel like gets unlocked when that like original core four plays together, and I, I think you know, for people who want to bury them and say that they've been so reliant on Durant to this point, and what are they going to be able to do without them, I think they're going to look like a completely different team. And I think that might be to their benefit. That, that may be true. And look, I, I'm sticking with Warriors in seven, with or without Durant, to be honest with you. the Warrior, I tweeted this last night. The Warriors, to me, have a look of like, like if you watch like boxing or something, like a, a teetering champion where you can tell like, man, one more shot and he might go down. Yeah. And it's just like somehow they keep dodging that knockout punch and responding with like a last ditch haymaker that you know is like their last breath. And I think they're going to get through this round and survive and probably get through the West Finals. But again, all this kind of goes to what we've both been saying pretty much all year. These like blow after blow and these cracks in the foundation. You could be like, man, 
that I think I might take the field this year because there's just these little things adding up over the course of the year. So I think they survived this. But again, I just think it's another crack to the foundation that an East champion is going to exploit. And it's managed to make them kind of interesting, mm-hmm. you know? So I, I think, you know, for the sake of the product and to the fans that just want to see more competitive balance, like, they are not steamrolling their competition, you know? They're they're kind of limping through. And if they do win the title this year, I think it's going to be a really impressive accomplishment. I don't think it's going to feel like previous years where it's like, oh, yeah, obviously they won. It was a foregone conclusion from the start. It is extremely not that. I think they have legitimate challengers who match up with them really well and can exploit their weaknesses. I think they are banged up. I think they are thin. And I think, like you said, they're teetering a bit. And the Rockets, you know, more than any team that we've seen, just sort of do things to them that make them uncomfortable, that take them away from who they are. And, I mean, even being down 3-2, I feel like they're in a pretty good spot right now, and they got to feel pretty good about their chances. I agree with all that, and this is why this, what you're seeing right now from the Warriors, this is why if you are a contending team or a semi-contending team, this is why you go for it. This is why the Raptors did what they did. This is why the Sixers did what they did um, at the deadline and getting Jimmy Butler earlier in the year. Like... There's a big difference between, you know, okay, like a team like the Pistons or something, or even a team like the Clippers this year, where they, like, they were a fun team, they were scrappy, but they had no chance of winning the title at all. They weren't even a semi-contender, they were just like a solid playoff team. I understand the argument for those teams, you know, to not bury themselves in mediocrity and chase like a sixth seed every year. But when you're the type of team that can like realistically put together a perennial playoff team that can fight for like a top four seed every year and you have the opportunity to truly go for it, you go for it. Because this is exactly why. You never know how... And it's not just the Warriors, but they're the champions right now, so I'm talking about them. You never know um, how an extra game they have to play against the Clippers affects them later. You don't know if Steph Curry's going to roll his ankle on an extra game. Or or pop his finger out. Exactly. Dislocate his finger and not shoot like Steph Curry the rest of the playoffs. Or Kevin Durant has to play 45 minutes a game and strains his calf in a very tight series. Like... These are the things that you put yourself in position to take advantage of when you do go for it. Having said that, a team like the Rockets, you better take advantage of this opportunity. Yeah, I'm interested to see, like, they probably slot Looney into the starting lineup um, and and keep Iguodala there. I, I just, who's coming off their bench in Livingston, that case? Livingston, and like, that's Liv- it. Livingston and Jarebko, and who actually McKinney? came. McKinney? Yeah, but for like a, a few minutes. You know, it was Livingston and Jarebko started that fourth quarter. Jarebko actually hit a big three, and yeah. that's really all they needed him to do to survive the three minutes that he was out there before Looney and Iguodala came back in. But, yeah, it's not looking great um, for their bench. And I just, I guess I wonder what the adjustment is going to be if the Rockets downsize and go to that Tucker at the five lineup. Do they leave Looney out there and hope that they can make it up? Because... A big reason they won this game, and it's been a story of this entire series. Every single team that has won the offensive rebounding battle has won. Um, And Looney kind of swung that game with his offensive rebounding. He pulled down five offensive boards, a couple of really crucial ones, one late that led to a a Clay Thompson three-pointer that put the Warriors up eight in that fourth quarter. And if he can do that, if he can hang defensively and he can hurt them on the glass, then they can survive. But if it reverts to what it was in in games three and four when 
Tucker is the guy who's demolishing the Warriors on the glass and the Rockets are getting away with going small, then I think they could be in some trouble. And then it's like, if you want to go to Draymond at the five, who else is running with that lineup? Because Livingston has looked cooked. So I just don't know. They they don't have a ton of options as far as adjustments go, you know, rotation-wise. Yeah, no, depth-wise, I mean, they're obviously in trouble. Uh, quickly before we get to Bucks celtics are, are, so are you sticking with Rockets in seven? I'm sticking with the Warriors in seven. I mean, I guess, how can I go, how can I go away from that pr- prediction now, right? Uh, oh, Kevin Durant's out of the series. The Warriors are going to get better, man. <laughs> I didn't say they're going to get better. No, I, I just know, think I they, they're, they're going to change their style of play, right. and that might be more conducive to breaking the They can the, still the win without system. them. Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I'll stick with Rock and Seven just because that was my pick at the start of the series, so I might as well stick to that. But Clint Capella's got to be better. I mean, yep. that's you're talking about Looney and what he was able to do. In that game five, I mean, Capella should be doing that to the Warriors. And he just hasn't been. He hasn't been good. And I I don't know if they can win if he continues to play the way that he's been playing. I don't think they can. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. Moving over to the East. The first second round series to come to an end saw the... Number one overall seed, Milwaukee Bucks, wipe the floor with the Boston Celtics for four consecutive games after dropping game one. Mike Budenholzer and Giannis Antetokounmpo said, no adjustments needed. I don't think they made very many. They were the better team throughout the year. You wrote a great piece earlier this week capturing, I think, the spirit of this series is that these two teams showed us who they were. They both were who we thought they were. If you watched... The regular season and the even the first round, despite the Celtics sweeping it, the Bucks are really damn scary good, and yeah. everything about them all year has screamed championship level juggernaut. And the Celtics were a good but not great, unspectacular forty nine win team that did not have enough star talent in the end. Um, your thoughts on the series? I mean, I think the Bucks did make one really crucial adjustment, which is that they started switching more on defense. Uh, they were switching pretty much everything one through four. They were even switching, you know, things one through five at times. They were willing to switch point guards onto Horford. They were willing to switch Lopez onto Kyrie. And that really took away the, the bread and butter pick and pops that the Celtics had used to hurt them in that game one. That game one was also just a crazy shooting game for the Celtics that was going to normalize. And I think it was an aberrant performance for the Bucks too, and that Giannis just couldn't really solve the Celtics' defense, and the rest of the guys around him weren't picking up the slack. I'm kind of disappointed in myself. I overreacted to that game a bit, and I said, you know, when we talked, uh, it was after game two, actually. I, I said I thought that series was actually going seven, even after saying initially that it was going five or six. The, the Celtics just didn't have enough ways to score, and this is what I've been saying kind of for the last few months. A lot of people have really been bending over backwards trying to explain what went wrong with this team. You know, was it Kyrie's poor leadership and the way that he called out the young guys in the media? Was it his free agency hovering over this entire season? Was it Brad Stevens' coaching? Was it, like, too many mouths to feed? 
I've heard people saying like there was just too much talent on this roster, and I don't get it. Like, where is all of this talent that people are talking about? Because yes, Kyrie is a fantastic scorer. Yes, Horford is a multi-skilled big man who can present a lot of matchup problems, as we saw in Game One of this series. But as a top two in the second round of the playoffs, you know, when you're one of eight teams left. That top two is at the low end of the totem pole, as far as I'm concerned. And the complementary talent, given that we didn't see a leap from Tatum this year, he was basically the same guy, if not slightly worse. Jalen Brown, I actually thought, had a pretty nice postseason, but for the most part, was also the same guy that he was last year. Terry Rozier regressed. Gordon Hayward obviously wasn't close to being the guy that we expected him to be. I think the preseason expectations of this team made sense given how good they were in the playoffs last year and the fact that they were getting Kyrie and Hayward back. But I think it should have been clear after a couple of months that this wasn't going to be the team that we thought. And the biggest reason for that was because the talent wasn't actually there. The talent wasn't what we thought it was. And I'm not saying that all that other stuff didn't play into this in some way. I'm sure, you know, if there was a fractious locker room, as it seems that there was, that obviously is going to have some effect on the players. And I'm sure for some of the guys who had huge opportunities and played big minutes last year, having their roles downsized this year had an effect also. I, I think there is some credence to all of that stuff. I just think the, the overriding issue here was the fact that they weren't as talented as the Bucks, and they didn't have enough firepower at the end of the day to beat them. Yeah, they just aren't good enough as a team. It doesn't mean they're not a good team. They're a good team. They won 49 games. That's what they are. They show, As you said, they showed us that, and they showed us that again in the second round of the playoffs. They're just not good enough to be a championship-level team. They have a bunch of young guys that overperformed last postseason, got some bounces too with the way the bracket broke, that they avoided Cleveland until the conference finals, had a nice series against Philly that they won, and even Milwaukee, but those guys all overperformed. Jason Tatum had a really nice um, rookie year. Expecting him, like the way some people expected Jason Tatum to then take another leap... It's like, well, he had a good rookie year and did this in the playoffs. Obviously, he's going to become like a borderline all-star this year. Like, that's not how it works all the time. Right. Um, but I, again, like, I think it's not like it was an unrealistic expectation because he had looked really good in the playoffs last year, right? And looked like a guy who, first of all, he, he fits a prototype. He's a big wing. He's got length. He could create off the dribble. He could shoot. He could defend. All the tools were there. But I agree. It's like... You just don't know. You, right. can, you can project that onto him, but you also have to be willing to acknowledge that development curves are not all uniform, and everybody develops at different rates. I still think Tatum's going to be really so good. So do I. But, uh, you know, this but, stuff doesn't always happen in a linear fashion. What, yeah, and what I'm saying, too, is, like, all these guys are young, right? Um, Jason Tatum's a sophomore. Jalen Brown's, I think, a third-year player. Rozier, third, fourth, whatever it is. But, like... He had that great rookie year. I still think he's going to be good. But what I'm saying is like, even halfway through this season, when the Celtics had showed us who they were, people were still looking at it as like, well, but like, look what Tatum did last year. He's going to figure it out at some point and take this leap. And it's like, yeah, but that was one year. That was one year in the NBA. He had already given you half a year of being not that great this year. Mm -hmm. Like why, what about last year outweighed what he showed you this year to make you think, oh, last year was the truth and not this year, right? It's probably somewhere in between, at least at this stage of his development. Kyrie Irving proved to be a terrible leader, like full stop. He's a great player and he might, whether it's in Boston or his next stop, he might be a great leader 
Um, he might lead a team to a championship as the number one player. I'm not saying that because this happened this year, you know, he's done as a number one. But when you force your way out of LeBron's shadow because you want your own team and you want to be the man, and then in your first season as the man, last season I guess too, but this year was his first year like healthy as the man throughout and his first postseason as the man, to go down the way he went down, um, to cause the rift, the reported rift in the locker room that he caused with his comments and his just bizarre behavior in the media all year, like, he's got to own that. He had a terrible year as a leader. The Celtics young players either stagnated or regressed. Terry Rozier, like, Terry Rozier had this quote yesterday where he says, I don't give an F what nobody say. I sacrifice the most out of anybody. Terry had a great playoffs last year. The whole scary Terry thing took off. Let me give you drop some facts on Terry Rozier, okay? This guy's played four years in the NBA. Do you know how many years in the NBA out of those four he cracked even the 40% barrier in field goal percentage? Zero. He's yet to shoot 40% from the field in his NBA career. And this guy's out here entitled talking about how much he sacrificed. Maybe this is part of the problem with the Celtics. These young guys may be bought into their own hype a little bit too, which... Hey, we've never been in that position as professional athletes to shine on right. a playoff stage. Maybe that's how it goes. But the young guys bought into their hype too much. Um, Brad Stevens, for as good as he is, you know, was seen as some sort of like transcendent next Popovich, which he's a good coach. He's not that. There's probably no other guy in the world that's that. Kyrie Irving failed as a leader. Gordon Hayward, through no fault of his own, does not look good. Al Horford, for most of the year, had lost a step. And you add it all up. And it's like, I don't care what Marcus Morris says about the Celtics being the better team. They weren't. They're not good enough. That's the story. Yeah, and I, my feeling about this is it almost, I almost want to absolve them from all this external noise about why it was this whole thing broke down. Because watching Giannis just rip through any non-Horford defender he went up against in this series, I was like, what are they supposed to do? You know, they, they just they didn't have the horses to stop him. Horford did an outstanding job in game one, but I think it was clear after that that it's like they they didn't have a lot of other wrinkles to throw at him. And once they sort of solved that wall in transition, and once they found ways to get other guys switched onto Giannis and recognize that he could just destroy anybody else one on one, what you know, I, I what else did they have really? I mean, obviously it would have been nice if they could have hit some shots. In games four and five, they, they just went ice cold, and that was a big reason that they lost. But I, I don't want to put it on Brad Stevens, and I don't want right. to put it on their locker room chemistry. I just want to say, like, the Bucks were better. But Kyrie is going to take a lot of heat, and I think deservedly so, because all season he's been saying, this is when I'm going to shine, right? I'm looking forward to the postseason. He said, I'm so tired of all this regular season BS and talking about how we're going to get better I just want to be playing on the biggest stage, under the bright lights. That's what I'm here for. So for him to have been saying that all year long, you know, dropping those crumbs, dangling that carrot, like, just you wait. Just you wait until the playoffs, and I'll show you what I can do. I mean, he finishes the series going, what, I think 25 of 83? Abysmal. In the final four games. And then he comes out and says, after going 8 for 22 in Game 3, I'm not going to go 8 for 22 again. What does he do? He goes 7 for 22 in Game 4 and 6 for 21 in Game 5. After saying he would not go 8 of 22, 
going 7 of 22, he then responded to a question about his shooting with, who cares? Yeah, I mean, I, I did actually, I think, understand what he was saying. I think it was taken out of context, and he certainly could have been more tactful in his word choice. I think he was just saying, like, this is what I do. These are the shots that I take. And that's 100% correct. He's a difficult shot maker. Uh, it's part of who he is. But when that's not there, you got to find some other way to impact the game. And I actually think his playmaking in this series was kind of underrated, and it fell by the wayside because the Celtics, again, just couldn't hit shots. But his defense was really bad. I, he wasn't boxing out. He was conceding switches that he shouldn't have been conceding because he didn't want to fight through screens. He was a step behind on pretty much every play. Like, if you're a scorer and you're not scoring, like, you got to bring something else to the table. And I just don't think that he did that. I think yeah. after a whole year looking forward to this and saying he's a playoff performer, like, this is when he's going to shine, for him to go out like that is a really bad look. Yeah, and even just the whole off-court distraction thing, you know, his his excuse for saying at the beginning of the year to season seat holders that, you know, if he's already told the organization, if they'll have him back, he's going to re-sign... His excuse for that later on in the year when he ended up saying, I don't owe anybody shit, was that like he just got caught up in the moment and that's why he said it and, you know, he doesn't want to just do things to make people happy anymore. Fair enough. But when you're the face of the organization, again, when you specifically wanted out of Cleveland to, to have this and for this type of franchise, for like a legacy franchise, guess what, man? There are responsibilities that come with that. Just like LeBron has had to face in every stop he's ever gone. And you need to be, quite frankly, smart enough and mature enough to know that, okay, I'm having fun at a season seat holder event, but don't say something as ridiculous as a year in advance, oh, I'm going to resign if you'll have me back. Knowing full well that things can change, and this goes back not to toot my own horn, because we've both been right and wrong about a lot of things on this podcast over the last 14 months and 69 episodes, but I don't think I've ever been wrong. <laughs> the, the one thing I'll say is, when Kyrie said this back in October, I don't know if you remember, but we talked about it on the show, and my response was, this guy is a flat earther, and I literally don't take anything that comes out of his mouth seriously. But this is kind of my argument. Like, when a guy says something, the kinds of things as strange as Kyrie does, like, maybe don't overreact and think, whoa, he said he's coming back. Like, it's a foregone conclusion, because guess what? It's not. And again, he just failed as a leader in a lot of ways, and in terms of the Celtics and everything we've been talking about, I think they're an extreme example of how in pro sports, a lot of times the expectations almost matter more than the results, right? If the Celtics, you know, if we came into the season um, knowing the Celtics talent level, knowing what these young guys are at this stage of their development. Knowing what Hayward was going to exactly, be. Exactly. And then they won 49 games, got a four seed, and lost in the second round to the best team in the NBA. It doesn't seem like the sky's falling. It seems like... That's about right for that team. Yeah. But because of the expectations, they're getting booed off their home floor at the end of game four. Kyrie Irving, even Al Horford maybe, their last moments in Celtics green and white might have been getting booed off the parquet floor because the expectations were out of whack. Yeah. I, they have a fascinating offseason ahead, obviously, and I'm sure we'll talk more about that in the coming days. But for now, the thing that I'm stuck on is this Celtics team was supposed to be the deepest team in the league. This is how they were supposed to destroy teams in the regular season and why we thought that they were going to come away with the one seed in the Eastern Conference was they just had they ran 10 deep basically and their their bench was going to be able to bolster their starters and destroy other bench units. How does their season end? 
they get run off the floor by George Hill, Pat Connaughton, and Ursan Ilyasova. I mean, that just that tells you the story right there. Like the Bucks had the season, and this is what I wrote after that game four. The Bucks had the season that the Celtics were supposed to have, where all the the pieces fit together. They actually had the depth that carried them through. They had a unifying team concept that has been evident from day one. You know, they they are a juggernaut. And I, I I have a hard time seeing anyone beating that team right now with the way they're playing. I really do. Yeah, no, I'd, I'd agree with that. Um, real quick, because I want to get to the uh, the Lakers coaching shenanigans. But before we do that, two series going tonight. So we won't go too deep into them because, I mean, it'll get stale by the time people listen to this. But just real quick, do the Raptors and Nuggets close it out tonight? Why or why not? Man, um, I think on paper, the Nuggets should close it out tonight. I just don't know that I trust them on the road in a game six. Even though they've proven it, like they've won a couple really pivotal game fours on the road, I feel like Portland kind of has one last gasp in them. But just watching this series, it's like Denver has so many advantages and... I feel so often, even when Portland's like winning, it seems like they're treading water. You know, they're working so hard to stay above the surface because they don't have enough answers for what the Nuggets can do to them. And so often, like the games that the Blazers have won, they've won them because the Nuggets just couldn't hit shots. And what, like, they don't have an answer for Jokic. They haven't this whole series. Their front court is getting destroyed, not just by Jokic, but also by Paul Millsap. Whoever they've stuck on Millsap, it's like he'll take those guys into the post and dust them. And when they've tried to switch Canner onto them, he's pulled Canner out to the perimeter and dusted him. And at the other end of the floor, Millsap's just like camping out in the lane. They're sticking him on Aminu or Evan Turner, and he is flat out ignoring those guys and blowing up anything that the Blazers want to do in the middle of the floor. He's been outstanding. Jokic has held up better defensively than I would have expected, especially given the minutes load that he has carried in this series. I want to pick them to win this game six. I just think that they have proven over the course of this series that they are the better team. But I, I don't know, man. I, like a game six in Portland, I kind of feel like this is sort of a last stand type of thing where Portland will win. I just don't have a great tactical explanation for why that's going to happen. No, I'm completely on board with you. I had Nuggets in seven for this series coming in, and I'm sticking with that. I agree with everything you said about the advantages Denver has, and it's why I... It's weird, because like, I think it's going seven. I thought it was going seven the whole time. I think the Blazers win tonight, and yet, I even though anything can happen in game seven, I don't even think there's like a possibility Portland then wins that game. Okay, that's probably a little extreme. Dane <laughs> yeah. can steal it, but you know what I mean. Like... It's one of those series where I fully expect the Blazers to take care of home business tonight and force a Game 7, and then I could very easily see Game 7 being one of those Game 7s where it's like Denver's up 22 in the fourth quarter. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just... Lillard obviously has to be way better for Portland to win, and that's, you know, him him versus Jokic, I know it's not like a head-to-head type of thing, but that's the story of the series to me because coming into any series when I am trying to predict or project what's going to happen. What I always look at is what can team X do to exploit team Y and what can team Y do to exploit team X and then I sort of weigh those things against each other. And I picked the Blazers to win this series coming in because I felt like 
Lillard could do as much damage to the Nuggets as the as Jokic could do to the Blazers. And that just hasn't been the case. And he's a lot of it's just been him missing shots that he was making earlier in the playoffs. But the Nuggets have done a really excellent job. And Gary Harris on the ball has been so good fighting over top of screens and making it difficult for Lillard to get the space that he needs to get off those pull-up jumpers. That's made things immeasurably easier for their bigs, who are often vulnerable because they're coming up so high and they don't defend especially well in space. Even though, like I said, Jokic has held up really well and, and he uses his hands to kind of protect against his slow-ish feet. The, the combination of the on-ball defense of Gary Harris and the screen defense of Jokic and Millsap has kind of neutralized Dame. And so it's often been McCollum who's had to come in and, and pick up the slack. And while I think he's done a great job of that, he's just not an alpha. And I don't think you can expect that from him night after night. So if the Blazers are going to pull this off... They need more from Dame, and they absolutely need more from Aminu, who is like, I don't know what he's shooting from three in this series, but it's really poor. And if he can't make Millsap pay for playing like 20 feet off of him, then they're doomed. So he's got to hit threes, and Mo Harkless has to hit threes, and they have to find a way to, to defend that Millsap-Jokic front court. Otherwise, I, I just don't know how they can how they can pull this off. Do, you, do they pull it off tonight? Like I say, I just think... I, it, it has that feeling to me of a game where there's more urgency on the Blazers' side and they somehow squeak it out and then lose in Game 7. Agreed. I agree with that. And the other thing I'll say going to the East is that I'm going to stick with the prediction I had coming in, which was Raptors in 6, which would mean I see the Raptors closing it out tonight. I do think it'll be a good game. And the way this series has gone, it would not shock me if the Sixers just blow them out and it comes back to Toronto for a Game 7. But... I do think as the series has worn on, I think Nick Nurse has figured some things out. I think the Raptors have figured some things out. And the one thing I saw in Game 4 from the Raptors, and especially in Game 5 in that blowout, is they've kind of got that look now of a team that... And you've seen it, whether it's in the NBA, in different sports. And I'm not saying they're going to win the title because of it, but sometimes these teams come along where it's like this cast of veterans, and you almost see it in their eyes, in the way they're playing, in their focus, that... There's like a collective understanding that they know, man, this might be our chance, you know, whether it's Kyle Lowry, whether it's Marcus Gasol, after all the years he grinded in Memphis, maybe like realizing like, man, this, this is our chance. We need to seize this, whether they take care of business, whether they end up beating Milwaukee, winning a title, we don't know, but that's kind of like the sense I got from this team during game four and especially during game five. And that's why I think they're going to go to Philly tonight and take care of business. I don't think it'll be like game three when they looked like a deer in headlights, quite frankly, in Philly, and they were down 20 by the second quarter. I just think at the end of the day, it comes down to what the Raptors' supporting cast is going to do. Because when they've shown up, even a little bit, they've won. And, you know, quite frankly, uh, in the games that they lost, games two and three, they weren't there at all. And, and it all fell on Kawhi. And, I, you know, the reason that they blew out the Sixers in that game five, first of all, the Sixers played pretty poorly, but... Everybody contributed, and I thought Kyle Lowry had his best game of the series. Siakam bounced back after a pretty woeful game four when he was dealing with that calf issue and looked a whole lot better. Danny Green finally knocked down his threes. Gasol was finally taking his threes, and he was hitting those. I I think, you know, when those guys are contributing, I don't know if there's a whole lot that the Sixers can do. Are they going to be able to bring it in Philly? Because they, that, that supporting cast looked pretty shaky uh, the last two games in Philadelphia. So 
this one's really tough to call. I'm going to agree and say that the Raptors pull it out. I think it's going to be really close. And I also agree that I wouldn't be surprised at all if it came back to Toronto for Game 7. It's kind of the same thing that I was talking about in that Nuggets-Blazers matchup. I just think what the Raptors can do to the Sixers kind of outweighs what the Sixers can do to the Raptors. First of all, Lowry's post-defense has done so much to blow up Philly's offense. And if, if the Raptors can get away with having him guard Jimmy Butler or Tobias Harris while Kawhi is hounding Ben Simmons, I don't know, like, like where's the Sixers' offense coming from? You know, that was a big thing to me. Is like they get so much. They're so reliant on that Embiid-Reddick two-man game. But the Raptors totally took that away in game five. And they were switching everything, one through four. And it devolved into Sixers isolations, a lot of which ended up with, with guys posted up on Lowry. And they just could not move him at all. Raptors did an amazing job cleaning up the defensive glass. I think that's going to be they- a big... A big focus for for Philly in that game six. The like, Sixers did not have a single offensive rebound when Serge Ibaka and Marcus Hall right. shared the court. And that front court has kind of changed the tenor of the series, right? Like the Raptors were looking, you know, at ways that they could match up with the Sixers' size, and the fact that they've gotten away with playing that unit, where Ibaka has to go up against Tobias Harris in that configuration, right? And you would think that's pretty risky, given that Harris is a little bit more nimble, can stretch him out to three. It hasn't been the case, man. Harris has not taken advantage of him. And at the other end of the floor, it's like the Raptors are the team that's kind of punishing them with size all of a sudden. They got those high-low feeds going with Gasol and Ibaka, getting him going uh, in the post, having Lowry and Ibaka run pick-and-pops, which is something we were calling for early in the series when Ibaka was giving them nothing. So if the Raptors can get something off of the bench and they can get contributions from the rest of their guys outside of, outside of Kawhi and Siakam, then I think they're going to be fine. One last thing about Lowry is, you know, you mentioned the work he's doing on the defensive end in the post. His screening on offense, like, look. Those Spain screens, like the good, secondary screens right. when he mashes yeah. Embiid from behind. The, the Spain pick and roll that Nick Nurse will tell you is actually the Italian pick and roll because Sergio Scrollo, the head coach of the Spanish national team who's an assistant with the Raptors, is actually Italian, but that's for another day. But no, the shooters make good screeners in general, and strong guys like Lowry, you could often say, are good screeners for their size. Forget for his size. Kyle Lowry's an excellent screener, period. He's screening two guys at a time out there. He's screening Joel Embiid. It's honestly awesome to watch. Um, yeah, that post-game three cookie run has, yeah. has really helped them out. Unbelievable. To finish the podcast today, let's go to La La Land, where Lakers fans probably wish someone would set a hard screen on Rob Polinka right now <laughs> because this guy is making a mess of the Lakers organization. Just to catch everyone up in case... You know, you've been busy watching the playoffs and not really seeing what's going on in Lakerland. So, Luke Walton, out, obviously, ends up getting a job with Sacramento. Monty Williams reportedly emerges as the favorite of the Lakers' front office. And the reports were that Rob Palinka didn't necessarily agree with that, and him and others in the front office wanted Ty Lue, so they purposely either lowballed or just kind of, like, dragged their feet offering Monty Williams anything. He ends up taking the Suns' job instead, Okay, great. Now, Ty Lue, that's the guy you want. You can go get him. And what do they do? They end up apparently lowballing Ty Lue, only giving him a three-year deal. They also weirdly, uh, reportedly, wanted to saddle him with Jason Kidd as an assistant coach, regardless of what Ty Lue wanted, when usually your head coach hires their own coaching staff. And it's especially awkward when you're telling a head coach, this other guy who was pretty recently a head coach is going to be your lead assistant. None of that made sense. Ty Lue ends up saying, no, thanks, I'll take my chances elsewhere. Right. 
So the Lakers, the mighty Lakers, the Lakers of yesteryear and all that lore and having LeBron James are now 0 for 2 on the coaches they wanted. And, I, you know, I made a mention earlier this postseason that, you know, the Clippers hide the Lakers banners and retired numbers during home games, but that the Lakers were doing a pretty good job themselves of kind of casting a shadow over that history. Case in point right now. Might be nice to have a president of basketball operations, hey? Like, it's so symptomatic of the Lakers' attitude toward everything and their sense of entitlement. This feeling that, oh, we're the Lakers, don't worry. Like, we'll get whichever coaching candidate we want. And we'll be able to set the terms. They, they want to get Ty Lue because they think he, he's coached LeBron before. I mean, I think he did a, a pretty good job with the hand he was dealt in Cleveland, honestly. I, I think he's an underrated actual coach, like, from... Yeah, X's and O's, I think he's maybe average, but as a as a player manager, I think he showed that he can do a really good job in difficult circumstances. I think he would have been a good fit, frankly. But then they come in here, and, and they're trying to set the terms. Like, no, you have to have Jason Kidd on your staff. Really, Jason Kidd? That's the hill you're going to die on? They're selling this idea of pedigree and prestige and mystique, and it's eroding by the day. And they're not doing anything to address the issues that are central to like all of this stuff, which is that the leadership has totally fallen apart. And I don't know if the plan is ultimately to elevate Rob Palinka to that president of basketball operations role or whether they still want to bring in an external candidate, but like they need somebody in that position right now who's going to be able to make decisions. It can't be Kurt Rambis coming in and, and deciding that Jason Kidd has to be on staff, or he needs to be an assistant on the staff. Like, you need to bring in the best possible people, and in order to bring in the best possible people, you need to be flexible. Like, you are selling them, because this is not a particularly attractive situation right now. It just isn't. Even though LeBron is there, looking ahead to free agency, you know, with all the reporting that's out there about where these free agents actually want to sign, it is not looking good for the Lakers' ambitions, and, you know, maybe they managed to pull off an Anthony Davis trade somehow. But given the, the, the level of dysfunction that is going on with this organization right now, if you want to bring in a coach, you got to be able to throw the bag at them and give them what they want. So I, I don't know what they're doing, but none of it is good. If I'm a Lakers fan, I have zero faith in Jeannie Buss. Zero faith. Listen, when, when she took over kind of the basketball side, um, firing her brother and putting Magic Johnson in charge... That was obviously the wrong choice, but, you know, she seemed like the type of proactive um, owner that you want for a team. You know, she's got the legacy of her father behind her. She wants to restore that legacy. She's so um, dedicated to restoring that legacy that she's willing to fire her own brother. I I thought that took um, a lot of guts, and it was very admirable on her part. What has she done with that responsibility? She has hired, in the last couple of years, Magic Johnson... Rob Palinka, and now apparently the most powerful person in the organization making these decisions is Kurt freaking Rambis because Jeannie Buss and Kurt Rambis's wife apparently go way back and are super tight. When you look at the people she has empowered since firing her brothers, starting to think maybe she deserves no benefit of the doubt. Like she has failed in her role and I would have no faith in her making the right decisions going forward because it seems like All she wants to do as head of the Lakers is kind of like have her friends in charge and have Kobe's people in charge. And it's it's kind of a gong show. And the other thing I'll mention, going back to them doing a good job themselves of casting a shadow over their history, 
guys coming into the NBA now are born in the 2000s, okay? Guys getting drafted this year are going to be born in the year 2001. They were born and toddlers around the time of the last Lakers three-peat, okay? They're only memories of Kobe and Shaq together are YouTube clips. By the time they were old enough to really understand what was going on in basketball, Kobe was already well past his prime, okay? For the majority of their basketball watching life, the Lakers have kind of been a joke. So I don't really know how much their history is going to matter anymore. It mattered to LeBron James. LeBron James is an older cat. He's a basketball historian, a student of the game. Kids coming into the league now, guys coming into the league now, Over the next few years, if the Lakers don't turn this around, I'm telling you, there will be no history to fall back on because if guys want to be in LA, they'll be with the Clippers. You think some 19-year-old who's coming into the NBA, say seven years from now when he's a free agent, if the Clippers do things right the next five to seven years and the Clippers keep going and the Lakers keep going like this, you think that guy's going to be like, oh, I don't know. I heard 30 years ago the Lakers were a great franchise and the Clippers were a joke, so I'm going to sign with the Lakers. No, they're going to go with the best organization right now, and that's the Clippers. I agree with most of that. I do think that the cachet the Lakers bring still matters to a certain extent, but not enough to outweigh the incompetence that's currently governing that franchise. And, you know, it's... Really unfortunate because everything you hear about Jeannie Buss is that she's really well-liked and well-regarded and well-respected among her peers. But she obviously has this idea of what it means to be a part of the Lakers organization. And the cronyism that is involved with that, maybe that worked in like the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s. But the rest of the league is just too smart for that now. And every other organization is too well-run for you to be out here on your own insulating yourself and and trying to govern this franchise with a, a small circle of friends like you need to cast a wider net you need to hire better people who can give you better advice it's been one blunder after another like this they just can't get out of their own way and to continue to have rob palinka at the helm making these decisions is a disaster like what are they what is going on with their president of basketball ops search right now no clue, but you want to know what's going on with their head coaching search? You want to hear the three names that are now rumored to be the front runners for head coach of the Los Angeles goddamn Lakers with LeBron James on their team? Lionel Hollins, Frank Vogel, and Mike Woodson. If we had a live audience, this is where the laugh track would come in, okay? Like, this is a joke. I... I don't think those any of those guys are particularly bad coaches. Oh, I think they're pretty awful. Okay. I mean, I, <laughs> I, fair. I, I mean, I think I think Vogel's done some good things. Sure. Um, I think Woodson's done some good things. And even apart from his head coaching career, he's been an assistant on some really good teams. Uh, Lionel Hollins, maybe a little bit less so. But, you know, it's not inspired thinking. They're not looking outside the box. They're not trying to find some cutting-edge assistant coach that's going to give them a vision for how they can play and how they can optimize the last few years of LeBron's career. They're retreads, and it's just, it's the same sort of myopic, insular thinking that has gotten them to where they are now. And even though Ty Lue himself was a retread candidate, I thought that that made sense because of the LeBron connection, because he'd proved that he knew what it took to basically coach up a LeBron roster. And, and held him accountable, too. Exactly. So all of that made sense. 
And maybe that's the thinking here is like they want to bring in a veteran voice, somebody who's been there before, and, and maybe they think like a new guy who's coming in, a fresh-faced assistant, isn't going to be able to get LeBron to buy in, whereas like maybe Lionel Hollins will. They just, they're so not creative in their thinking. And it's hard to see the situation getting a whole lot better. Like maybe LeBron's healthy next year and they do make the playoffs as a result. Maybe one of those young guys pops and that helps them get over the hump. But like, as of right now, I just feel like LeBron's got to be looking at the situation and thinking, what am I doing here? And I I don't have an answer. No, I, I don't either. I've, I've got nothing left to say about the Lakers, although I said that like seven times this year, and they do something so stupid two weeks later that we have to talk about them again. I'll throw it out there as I joked when Magic first stepped down. Ernie Grunfeld still out there if you're looking for a team president, Lakers. Yeah. All right, I think, uh, I think we've exhausted all topics for this week. We'll, uh, we'll probably be back earlier next week to preview the conference finals and maybe also to go over... Uh, the player rankings that we had going into the playoffs and revisit how we projected those guys. But unless Joe Wolfon has anything else to add? I do not. Then let's call it a wrap on episode 69 of Pound the Rock. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.